Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Priam, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube as well. That's always important. Uh, make sure to follow us on DuckTerritory.com. You can subscribe today for $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that. And hey, we've got a lot to talk about on today's show. Uh, a wide range of football-only topics. So if you're looking... For football-specific content, we have got you covered uh, here on this Mailbag Wednesday where we're going to break everything down that you guys want to know about. Five questions, Eric. Let's let's dive right into this show. All right. First one from at Dylan Silwester. If, for whatever reason, Anthony Brown was unable to start against Ohio State, who would start and why? I think this is a really interesting question. I think we both have the same answer, too. Yeah, I think we do have the same answer. So uh, it's Jay Butterfield, I think, is where we're probably both at right now in terms of which of the backups feels the most advanced, most ready to go win a football game. Um, and that's also we're saying that like in early May and maybe we get through fall camp and the answer feels different because right. we talked about this before. True freshman, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, there can be a huge growth from, you know, over the course of a couple months of being in, in the, you know, the weight training program, working with coaches and stuff. So like what's to say Ty Thompson can't, really step his game up and then he overtakes Butterfield as the quote unquote second guy. I don't think that's ridiculous, but right now, mid May, I think Jay Butterfield's probably the guy I feel best of, of giving you at least a shot to beat Ohio state and probably not a very good one, but that's who I would put out there. I, I would also agree. Um, I think it's Jay Butterfield and that's not necessarily to say that Jay Butterfield in my eyes is maybe the guy that's got the best potential or, will be the best overall football player in four years. But I think he's probably better suited right now to be your emergency guy for Anthony Brown if something were to happen. And, hey, you need to go out and you need to beat Cal at home uh, in a one-week scenario and then Anthony Brown is back. I think that is probably your best bet is Jay Butterfield, probably the more consistent guy that we saw in spring in spring football i mean obviously everyone's super high on ty thompson um and there is a ton of people that are extremely confident that he will eventually become a good quarterback i'm one of them i think you are too uh but just from what we've seen jay right now feels like he's slightly in the lead yeah it's kind of funny thinking about the conversations we had pre-spring about thompson and i think i remember doing a, a podcast not with us but with somebody else on our national and, and just the conversation was basically around ty thompson and anthony brown and i think that was where our heads were at for a while and then matt i think probably a month before spring started you kind of were like are we forgetting about maybe a couple weeks are we talking are we forgetting about jay butterfield and i think the answer was yeah i think it kind of got overlooked how good he was and how much progress he made last fall and you bring in the all everything recruit and I'm not trying to diminish Ty Thompson again, but like, I just think it was pretty easy to be like, he's going to be the one that's competing with Anthony Brown, but he's also a year younger and he hasn't been in the program. And I think that was sort of fool's gold. But again, I also think we have to understand he's only been at Oregon for, you know, a handful of months now. And the more time he spends here, um, the more he can further himself and potentially position himself to be that number two guy in a potential, I guess, fill in starter, um, against Ohio State, obviously that would be not ideal <laughs> if Anthony Brown couldn't play in that game, but we'll, we'll see what happens here. All right, next one from at Henry Stern. On a 1-10 to 10 scale of Herman Ho-Ching worried to LaMichael James <laughs> confident, already one of the best questions we've ever had, what's your confidence level about the Ducks running backs heading into the season? Hashtag go Ducks. 
Um, Henry, that's a great question. Uh, Herman Ho Ching, if those who aren't familiar, go, go give a quick Google there. That's a really highly regarded running back that just didn't put it together at Oregon and some probably some interesting stories. I think that was he probably like late 90s, Matt, like 97 to 2000, somewhere in there. Yeah, and, and kind of in that area and a guy that had all the talent probably to make it to the NFL. I think he had some off-field issues that also popped up. Not that Herman Hoching would appreciate us bringing all that up, but certainly <laughs> a guy that had all the, all the potential in the world. I don't know if it's fair to say he's the scale one, but here we are. So we're, we're using that as the, 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 wor- the most worried is that we think he'd be a Herman Hoching caliber of backfield. Um, I don't think it's a one. I don't think it's certainly a 10 either. Um, you know, here's what I'll say. I think it's interesting. Matt and I, we just, we did a podcast early this week talking about some of the quarterback stuff. And, and I thought Matt made a, a very astute observation of like the running, the quarterback depth and like the position as a whole has not been very healthy for, for a while. And this is probably the healthiest it's been in maybe like six to eight years of just like, you always had a good starter, but the backup wasn't very good. And that bit Oregon a couple of times. I kind of think running backs, the opposite of that. Like I look at running back and think, I feel really good about Travis Dye and CJ Verdell. Obviously CJ has to be healthy for me to feel good. But like those two guys have played a lot of snaps. Like this is their fourth year, basically coming into the season being starting running backs. We know they can do this. I have no idea what they have behind them. I mean, really, like, I think there are talented guys, but Sean Dollars has 15 career carries. The other three haven't played, and none of them were here for the spring. Dollars is so, hurt, too. I mean, yeah, Dollars is hurt. May not, eligible to, he's eligible to play, but he's not even healthy enough to play at the start of the year. And, we, and he might miss the first month or two of the season. I mean, Chris yeah. said at some point during the season, I thought that was telling the words he used. He didn't say before the season, we'll get him back for fall camp. He said at some point during the season. Like, that was significant. So, um, I'd say I'm like a five right now because I think the top end, I don't have many concerns. I just have zero idea of like what you're getting from the other guys. And I think the other guys are talented. I mean, like Sean Dollars is a former really highly regarded recruit four-star guy. Trey Benson was borderline and everybody speaks really highly of him. And then obviously Seth McGee and Byron Cardwell, the two signees are four stars. But like, Matt, I don't know if you agree, but I look at it and go, I don't know about any of those guys behind the top two. And not that I'm like super, super concerned, but if you were to be thrown into a position where CJ Verdell is not available, and I don't think it's crazy to suggest that given his injury history, I don't know how good I would feel with just Travis die. And then these guys we haven't seen play yet. I mean, I I'm with you. Um, there is concern about what happens to Verdell who has in his previous four years at Oregon has had some kind of injury that's prevented him from playing the full season. So you have that right there. And then Travis Dye, I, I think, did a very good job in terms of managing the workload towards the end of 2020. But I thought it was also kind of clear that I don't know if he can be relied upon to be an elite back, to be an every down between the tackles runner that you need. Um, and so that opens the door. Like someone else, in this, this is where Cyrus Abilakio was so important for this team and his departure kind of hurts is you've got a whole bunch of guys that don't have a, a ton of experience. Like you went through mm-hmm. um, I, I'm high on all of these guys. And, and maybe this is where seven McGee comes into, into play here. Uh, a guy that's going to be here at mid June and who originally was coming to play or to at, at Oregon as a running back, but is now kind of, I, I'm going to use this player's comp because it's the most, I think, understandable for the, for the duck fans out there, but it's not hundred percent equal, but Byron Marshall, like <laughs> I, I look at seven and, and think that's kind of how he's going to be used. 
He might be a running back this game. He might be a slot guy the next game or two games. And maybe he goes full-time running back if Cardwell or if uh, McGee – or, excuse me, or Dollars or Benson aren't ready yet and can't handle it. And maybe he can. I mean, Seven McGee is an unbelievably dynamic player. And maybe that's the guy that, that gets some reps or – you know, maybe Brian Cardwell is going to be looked at and said, hey, we weren't planning on playing you a ton, but you've got to be ready now. So I, I do think there is some level of concern. Um, tons of talent, but I'm – Eric, is it crazy? I'm I'm more like focused on Verdell and Die and thinking, okay, how good can these guys be? Because when we look at, when we look at the running back group, like I don't – I don't know where I would rank this tandem over the last 15, 20 years at Oregon from a running back perspective of Maurice Morris and Ontario Smith, um, Kenyon Barner and the Michael James, uh, Royce Freeman and Thomas Tyner. Uh, you've got Royce Freeman and, to- and Tony Brooks James, and you, you've, you've got uh, – Terrence Whitehead and Jonathan Stewart. And you know, the, the list is, is really good. And I don't, I for sure don't think these guys are top three in, in the last 20 years as a, as a tandem. Yeah. And so I, I'm more wondering of how high is the ceiling with these, with these older running backs, like Verdell is a top 10 career rushing leader at Oregon, but I also don't think he's nearly as good as any of the other guys in the top 10. So it's funny. So earlier on, on Tuesday, I wrote a spring review at the running back position. And, and my big question could easily have been who's the third running back. But what it was is like, what's the ceiling from yeah. CJ Verdell and Travis Dye? Because ultimately that's what matters most. Because like we said, these backup guys are going to be really helpful if there's an injury. And these backup guys, one of them is probably going to play a decent amount anyway, just because you, you're going you're to want a third running back out there to at least have in certain spots. But like ultimately the guys are going to carry the rock probably 80 to 90% of the time are are CJ Verdell and Travis die. And like, I had a moment there thinking like I could kind of envision, and this is, I'm going to make this comment. And in six months, people are either going to like, I'll I'll either be talking about how smart I was, or I'm just going to completely forget. I said it, but I'm not like, I could kind of envision a scenario where CJ Verdell has like a really, really special season. Because I think we forget a little bit about what the ceiling is. I know the consistency is not great. Like you go look through even his 2019 season and it's like 200 yard running games, 150 yard running games and everything else is like 60 to 90 yards. But like I I just part of me envisions like it's not it's going to be his last year. I think I kind of just wonder like maybe he's going to have a really special like 1800 yard season and maybe even I mean he said in the first week of spring practice he wants to run for 2000 yards and the Oregon rushing record is, is about 1850 um, held by Royce Freeman, Michael James has another really good season. They're like back one to two on that list. Like part of me is not going to be surprised if he's like kind of finishes somewhere in that range. Like I'm not going to be totally surprised. But then, the, but the flip side, realistically, with him is I'm also not going to be surprised if he's dinged up all season and he runs for 950 yards and Travis Dye runs for 800 and whoever the third back runs for 500. Just because his his career health is so is so up there. So I say that just to say like. I, I, part of me is also aware of the possibility that like maybe Verdell is going to quietly, not quietly by doing it, but like quietly go into this season and actually do something really special. Cause I think the talent is there. And I think the offensive line should be a lot better than it was at least a year ago. 
All right. Next one from at Luis Bond. To me, Devin Williams has huge upside. Do you see him getting the nod at an outside receiving spot? And if he does, which right which wide receiver would be first to move out of the starting lineup? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, we discussed this a little bit on our show from Tuesday. Matt, one of the, my pressing questions was who was the starting three? So I don't know how much we want to rehash this other than to say, I think we both think it's a big four receiving group right now. Yeah, um, he's in the group. And he's in that group without question. Um, I, I don't think it's ridiculous to think he starts a lot of games this season, um, like at all. And if like, I'm picking somebody to be moved out, it's really kind of challenging um, because positionally it would probably have to be a Micah Pittman or a Johnny Johnson just because they play on the outside where he plays. But Micah Pittman's also capable of playing in the slot. So maybe like in my head, for some reason, I kind of like a Devin Williams on one outside receiver spot, Johnny Johnson the other, and Micah Pittman in the slot. That's kind of like where I'm envisioning it working out. But I also realized that Jalen Red is really talented and has been probably more valuable than just about any offensive skill guy like the last two years. So does he really deserve to be pulled out of it? I don't know if I'm just overthinking it, and, and, and probably it's going to be something where it does come down to Devin Williams, Micah Pittman, and, and Johnny Johnson. I don't know. Like, Matt, if you had to pull one of those four guys out to put Devin in, like, who are you pulling? It's kind of, it's not an easy answer. It's not an easy answer. Um, boy, I, I think if it was me and I had to play only three of those guys, all of them were healthy. It pains me to say it, but I would move Micah to the slot and pull Jalen off. Like I like Jalen Red might be the guy like in the receiving core I respect the most because he gives he literally gives his all for the team and is pound for pound probably the toughest dude on the team and I just think if if you're gonna play if you have to play Devin Williams I I think you could get the same type of production in an, maybe a little bit different manner but other types of production as well that Jalen can't provide via Micah Pittman in the slot and Devin and Johnny on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. No easy answers. I think we kind of both. Think it's a, I, I, don't, I no. don't think there's a wrong answer. No. Like there's a bunch of correct ways to get to an, an end result, but there's not a wrong answer. And that's, and we should just say like, that's, what's good. That's a good problem for Brian McClendon and Joe Moorhead and all the people making these decisions is like Oregon, regardless of who the top three is, they're going to have a really good, threesome starting games like I don't think there's any doubt whether Devin Williams is out there or Micah Pittman or Johnny Johnson or Jalen Red one of those guys isn't likely to be obviously one of those guys can't be a starting receiver because they're only going to start three but like whoever those three are they're going to be really really good and then we, we've already talked about it behind them there's so much that it's it's going to be a very special year I think for this position group I don't think there's any question it's one of the strengths of the team I have it rate, rated and ranked as the best on the team I think some people maybe disagree, but that's, that's how I look at this group. I think it's potential to be really special. All right. Last couple here from at duck Cruz. Do you think it would be a good idea if the PAC 12 allowed, or sorry, follow the sec model of playing less conference games and more non-conference cupcake games, or would that hurt their image even more? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, so Pac-12 plays nine conference games, three non-conference games. SEC plays eight conference games, four non-conference games. Usually one of those being a game in like mid-November, mid early November. It's kind of a, a breakup of what is, you know, the gauntlet of the SEC. They play like five games, play a cupcake, three more games, 
postseason play. That's what Duck Cruz is referring to. Um, it's kind of a tough one here, Matt, because I, I don't, don't want them to. No, not at all. But if you're going to make it to the playoff and you're going to give yourself the best possibility, I think you have to. I think you have to move to four and you have to make sure that four of the two of those four games are against power five or a group of five bad teams. Like uh, I'm going to pull out like a New Mexico, like they are not good at football traditionally year in and year out. And you need to be playing a New Mexico every single season. And then you need to be playing an FCS, a Portland state, uh, a Montana, a Montana state, uh, a Cal Poly or whoever from that FCS level, you need to be playing them in November because that's essentially another bye week for you. Yeah. And then, and then I, I think every other year you, you play an elite power five team and that other year you, you don't, you play two, you know, group of five schools. <sighs> It, it you sucks, know, but I it's, think uh, if yeah. everyone else is going to be doing this, you have to follow suit. What what I would like is the NCAA to mandate this. The, the, it seems kind of, I mean, like professional sporting leagues, everyone has a set schedule. It's 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 set up a certain way, you know, and obviously it varies from year to year. And the NFL, I think they they weigh it based upon postseason results. So the Super Bowl team is supposed to play like the toughest schedule. The team that picks first, the worst team has the easiest schedule and so on and so forth. You know, basketball, you play the you know even number of teams in your division and then you play a certain number of teams against your conference and against the other conference, et cetera. It's kind of silly to me that in college football, you have teams playing for the same championship with completely different schedule like mm-hmm. setups. Like, I, I just don't think it makes sense. And the NCAA, in my opinion, they should step, step up and I don't care if it's eight or nine. It should just be even. Like, yeah. I, I, really, yeah. I, I, re- I really don't care what the number is. I don't think the product suffers a ton by playing a game that's kind of a bi-week game in the middle of November. Heck, that might not be a bad time to do that just so you're getting some of these young guys a bunch of reps midway through the season Keep that you might – engage throughout the entire yeah, year. exactly. Keep them engaged. They're not going to play if you're playing Utah on November 15th, but they might play if you're playing Nevada week – you know, in November 15th. So it just – my thing is less like I don't know what the, the, the number rate needs to be if it's eight or nine, but like, God, it just seems really silly that – two, you know, two different conferences or different conferences are playing different schedules. And, and then we're supposed to look at them at the end of the season and try to like compare them. It's like, it doesn't really work. So, I mean, if we're, if we're really trying to pick the four best college football teams and like, we're, we're really serious about it. I, I think it's about time that there's some sort of baseline of what a schedule has to look like. And I don't know what that is, but some, there needs to be NCAA needs to, to get in, in control of this. I don't think they will. And honestly, I don't think it's probably that high on their list of things to get dealt with, but it, it certainly, it, I don't know, that's what struck me when I was thinking about this question of like, I don't care what it is, but they should, everyone should just play the same rules. Wouldn't it be beneficial if the college football playoff committee could come out and be like, hey, we are, we are going to put a higher value in, into our rating system for the teams that go out and play difficult schedules, the teams out and don't play power five or don't play FCS schools. And if you lose uh, to a if you lose to a, a fellow Power Five opponent, like if they were if they were ranking like awards for playing games, and it's okay for winning a a Power Five game, Power Five versus Power Five game, we're going to give you three points, and for pl- for losing a 
power a game to a power five game, we're going to dock you one point. But if you play an FCS opponent and you get a win, we're going to dock you a point from your schedule, from your like strength, you know, schedule points from, from games that you win. Like I wish they could come up with a way that to, to basically say playing an FCS opponent and winning is equal to losing to a power five team. Like there's no value in that. Like don't, don't do that game. Don't play that game. Yeah. I, it seems, it seems logical. It seems really, it seems easy, but I, it's weird. They haven't figured out a way to just, I, and I, I know that there is that schedule is weighted into the formula for the college football playoff. And I know they talk about the schedule all the time. It just, I find it really strange that they don't talk about the specifics of like, they don't bring it up really on those college football shows, at least on ESPN primarily of like, Hey, should it's LSU versus, I don't know, I'm making up a hypothetical versus Oklahoma here uh, this week, LSU is playing Southeast Louisiana tech and, Oklahoma is playing Texas Tech. I mean, it's right. like that, that just seems silly that those teams are treated the same way for that result. And I know they're not exactly, but the fact that, that, that there's not enough heat on the SEC for playing those games. All right, last one from at Puddles Dog. Say we make it to the Pac-12 championship again. Who's our biggest threat from the Pac-12 South? Would USC or Arizona State offer the tougher challenge? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, those two schools, I think, naturally are where most people's heads go um, based upon, I think, the rosters, the way they've recruited, I think quarterback in particular, you think about the two quarterbacks at those two schools, younger guys who've had, I think, quite a bit of success right away, play as, you know, played as freshmen in 2019, 2020, held the jobs down. OSU had kind of the season from hell, so it's sort of hard to read exactly where they're at. They had more COVID issues than basically anyone in the entire country, but um, I still like those two teams probably as the, the, the two challenge Oregon. Am I crazy, Matt, for the third team, the dark horse team, kind of feeling like UCLA? Or, or, am, I, or am I just falling into this thing where every year I think Chip Kelly's going to figure it out, and then ultimately <laughs> it's 2025 and he's never figured it out and he's fired? Um, UCLA certainly feels like every year towards the end of the season that they are uh, – they are – turning that corner it's like, okay, they figured it out. And then uh, next year is going to be year where they make that, that turn. But unfortunately, like they, I think they upset USC, what in 2018 to end the year to, to go three and nine. You're like, okay, they, they've got the momentum. Now they're going to 2019 is going to be that year where they get to a bowl game and they went four and eight. And then this past year, uh, it was kind of the same deal. Like they played Oregon incredibly tough and uh, probably should have won that game. Probably should have won that game. And they had a couple other games down the stretch of the year where you're like, this, this team's going to, it's going to turn the corner. And then all of a sudden they don't. And so, and then they finished three and four um, and they lost their last two games. Like they were three and two to open the year. And then they lost their last two at USC by five a game that they probably should have won. And then at Stanford, uh, another one that they probably should have won. They went for two, I think, and they didn't get it. And they lost 48, 47. Um, so like they're right on the brink, but are they talented enough to win the league or to win the division now, Eric? Like, I don't know. I mean, USC is where elite talent goes to just get wasted. So like I, 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 every year it's always, Hey, USC's got the best talent. 
Um, USC is going to be this team that's going to be completely loaded and, and boy, watch out. Here we come USC. But then at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but every year they, they, they have like two or three games where they're just awful. And it's a pure blunder uh, of a wasted opportunity. Um, but Arizona state's going to be a good pick. I think every one of their seniors from last year's team came back, which yeah, is just, I, I saw that stat. What the heck? How does that happen? That's crazy. <laughs> like yeah. they will be, they will be a lot better in 2021 than they were in 2020. But I mean, UCLA is middle of the road in the conference from a talent perspective. They have the sixth most talented roster going into the 2020 year. And I imagine chip's going to have a little bit more talent coming in based on the recruiting class that they had. So USC, Arizona State, we haven't even talked about Utah. Well, like, I want, well or Colorado. Colorado almost won the division, and they bring back all their guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's, that's a good point, too. I mean, is the South the best division in the conference, top to bottom? It's, it's the deepest, yeah. Arizona's the worst team by a mile, I think, in the Pac-12 this year. But I think one through five in the Pac-12 South is much deeper than one through five in the Pac-12 North. Would you argue that – Colorado, Utah, and UCLA are going to be bowl eligible teams because I think we think UC, USC, and ASU will. Be. I could I could see five from the Pac-12 South getting to six wins. I don't think that's crazy because I think they're probably going to beat up on each other, and the winner is probably going to win seven out of nine games or something like that. I think I think that's a, actually I hadn't really thought about that the, the, the division by division very much. I think the Pac-12 South is pretty good. Like I mean, there are no terrible teams besides Arizona. Like Arizona is going to be awful. I'm already saying that, but like. You, you mentioned Utah, and I was like, wait, wait, Colorado has actually almost won the division. They had the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year last year. Like, I we haven't even brought them up. I don't – like, there's not a team, though, that scares me. Like, even That's USC, they don't – and the, part, the, the, the reason why USC doesn't scare me is because I just don't think Clay Helton is a very good head coach. And I, I, I think every year there's some kind of drama – and that's, that's not Clay Helton related. That's USC related. It carries over from head coach to head coach. So, but every year I, I, there's some kind of drama that goes on with the Trojans, some kind of issue that's blows up in their face that they could have prevented. And it kind of covers the, the entire year. Um, and I, I think Oregon is a significantly better run program than USC is. And I think their staff is just better than USC staff considerably so i i'm not really worried about usc like obviously you respect the talent that they have and if they play up to their talent they're really damn good but when how frequently do they do that it's not very often um arizona state they're like they're like the younger brother where that's kind of grown up you're like you're not quite sure what you're gonna get like is it the younger brother that you just beat up on or is it going to be the guy that's now 24 years old and you guys play a one-on-one basketball game and, he, and he's quicker than you. He's more athletic than you. He's in, he's in better shape than you are. And he just blows by you. That's like, that's how I look at ASU is sometimes they just play really bad. And other times you're like, Whoa, they could be, they, why, why don't you guys do this every time? You're, you're really good. Matt, how is Arizona State, Arizona State the exact same team in football and men's basketball? Yes. It's the same, right? Isn't that the conversation we have about men's basketball, too, of, like, when they're playing well, they're really tough, and then it's like – then there's games where they shoot 38 threes and make eight of them, and they lose <laughs> by 20, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, that is right. 
<laughs> their football and basketball teams are the exact, so the exact same thing. <laughs> which would be just mind-numbing if I was a Sun Devil fan. Yeah, same problem uh, every sport. <laughs> and then UCLA, like, I don't know. Like, it, it's Chip, but at the same time, Chip's, like, offense isn't anything close to what they hired him for. They hired him to be their organ version of Chip Kelly, at, but down at UCLA, and they're not like that. Um I think I would just go with consistency and say like Utah over the last four or five years has been the most consistent program in the PAC 12 South. And that would probably be the team that would scare me the most if I was Oregon, because I don't have their roster in front of me. I couldn't tell you one guy that starts along their defensive line, but I know they're going to have two all conference D linemen and they'll probably have one, one or two all conference linebackers. Like that's just standard for them. Well, I was sitting here trying to be like, how am I going to rank the Pac-12 South? And I realized somehow I had Utah fifth. And I was like, that can't be. Like, no. literally, that just won't happen. Utah's never going to finish worse than, like, third in the, in the South, I think. Like, and, and, and maybe they I – mean, and that's I'm sure they will. But, like, they are consistently going to at least be really competitive with Kyle Whittingham as the coach. And I'm with you. I don't know what their team looks like. But, like, I'm still buying, like, they'll be really competitive by the end of the year. So the last time they finished fifth in the, in the division – was in 2017 when they went seven and six, three and six in conference play. But, and you know, I'm trying to find another one where they're just consistently not bad. So t- since 2014, they've finished fifth twice, but they've also been first in 2015. Uh, they were third in the division in 2016. They won nine games. 2017, they, they finished fifth. 2018, they won the, the division at nine and five. 2019, they won the division at 11 and three. And then in 2020, they finished third in the division at three and two. Like they're always basically a top three team in the, in the division. And so I'm with you. Like until they go like back to back, I'm not picking them to, to, to finish worse than third in the, in the conference, in the, in the division. They, they also are their men's basketball equivalent, at least the way it was under Larry Kostowiak for a minute there, where it was like they never were probably going to win the league, but they were always going to finish like third through sixth. Yeah. And that's probably not a total fair comparison because Utah has shown they can win the football, like they can compete with the big boys in football, but they're never really bad. I think that's the thing that stands out with the men's in football. If we're just going to make that comparison among South teams, which apparently is what I'm doing during this podcast, like I just think it's kind of interesting thinking like, yeah, Utah's like never going to win the conference maybe, but they're always going to be right right there. And they're all, they're never going to get like one of like they're never going to be like the 10th to through 12th team. So, I've convinced myself the team to worry about the most is is Utah. Okay. I, I I'm I'm going to count on USC being traditional USC and imploding from within and not living up to expectations and Arizona State being too inconsistent. So, we're going Utah, USC, Arizona State, UCLA, Colorado, Arizona. That's our Pac-12 South hierarchy. Right it's now. Official. Put it in the books. It's middle of May. This is how it's going to go down. <laughs> Don't even play the season. It's pointless. Yeah, we, we got it. We, that's our, yeah, that's an Audible's podcast. Told you what's happening. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for submitting your questions for this week. And thank you for watching us on YouTube and also subscribing to the podcast on Google podcast or Spotify or iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. Thank you for doing that as well. And make sure 
Make sure to go to duckterritory.com today and sign up for a VIP membership for $1 for your first month. You won't regret that as well. And until we talk to you, whenever we talk to you, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks.